Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Mile Higher Podcast. This is episode 216, and today I'm going to be diving into the story of the Costa Concordia cruise ship disaster. This is an event that happened in 2012, and honestly, I didn't even remember this happening, which is weird because everybody else here remembered this happening or hearing about it, but uh, I just graduated high school, so forgive me, I probably was thinking about other things at the time. But this is a, a very, very honestly frustrating disaster that could have been completely avoided, as we'll find out. But I thought it'd be interesting to dive into another sort of cruise ship situation because the last time we talked about a cruise ship was the White Island volcano uh, sort of disaster that happened. And that wasn't really about the cruise ship as much as the excursion from the cruise ship to the White Island um, volcano. And that's just an absolutely insane story. And just everything from that was couldn't even imagine. And this is a similar situation. And yeah, we're going to dive into that today. But before we get into the episode, just a couple things here. Um, as you can see, Kendall is not back yet. It's just me. Janelle's here as well. And hopefully Kendall will be back here in a couple of weeks, it sounds like. I think there's only going to be a few more episodes with just me and Janelle. And then Kendall will be back hopefully at the end of the month we're shooting for. So that's the good news. Uh, so thanks to everybody for being patient with everything. It's been uh, quite an adjustment being parents. As you, as many of you know out there who are parents, it is uh, nothing prepares you for it. So we've been just kind of you know working our way back into our normal flow of things. And so hopefully things will be completely back to normal here in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tushy Raycon, stamps.com and Shopify. But cruise ships, man, actually, I have never been on a large cruise ship. I know, Janelle, you've been on a cruise ship before, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been on a couple, right? Yeah, a handful because um, a while back, my dad's like one of his best friends worked for a cruise line. Um, so we got discounts. So Kendall and I both have been on like a handful, but it's been a while. Like Royal Caribbean or? Uh, Princess. Oh, right. Princess. And then I think I've been on a um, carnival as well. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. What was your What was your overall like experience? I know you were younger when you I did that. I loved them. Yeah? You oh give it a God. raving review? Yeah. Especially for a kid. I mean, I've. They were like my favorite vacations. Like I loved them. I just thought the whole concept of being on like a huge ship is cool. And then being able to experience different places in one trip. Yeah, that's you know? kind of the cool thing about it is mm -hmm. you're not like stationary in one spot. You're moving to different ports and different countries oftentimes. Yep. Which yep. is cool. I, I guess that's it. what makes it unique. And it's really like a hotel. It's like a resort. On the ocean. Yeah, like a resort really. Yeah, it's huh? like a little city. I mean, obviously, there's different sizes and stuff. Right, and right. I mean, I haven't been on one since like 2007. Like, it's oh, been a really? long oh, time. Wow. In like a handful of like five years, I went on like four cruises because <laughs> we oh, got wow. a good discount. But now I'm sure they're even. Oh, I'm sure they're like begging you to come oh, back on yeah. the cruise ships, I feel like. Yeah. So I don't know because I um follow like TikTok accounts and stuff that show tours of yeah. like the huge Royal Caribbean boats. Those things are fucking It's crazy how big on they are. Water. It doesn't yeah. make any sense how these things float. It's cool. It is cool. And like I saw they're still launching new ships too. I think oh, yeah. Virgin just launched like a new ship and I was watching a 
commercial now. I was like, holy shit, this thing is. I was like, did you learn that from The Bachelorette? Because <laughs> they come. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for outing me on that. But um, yes, that's exactly where I saw He's like on a commercial. Because <laughs> <laughs> th- that episode was basically a commercial oh, for it Virgin was. Cruises. Yeah. It was crazy. If you guys watched The Bachelorette, you know what we're talking about. But yeah, they were like on this really like, nice looking ship. All by themselves, yeah. too. I was like, damn, that's mm-hmm. super nice. Yep. My thing is like, I don't like to be closed in. And the one thing that bothers me about cruise ships and is honestly scary, especially when we're talking about this, this cruise ship disaster is just how narrow parts of the ship are. Obviously there's big open areas and, and all that, but they're like your rooms, depending on the room you get, obviously some are bigger than others. But like, if you just stay in like a standard room on a cruise ship, it's not very big. <laughs> it's like a little closet. Basically. Oh yeah. No, it's not big. And well, I guess some of them, like if you get a suite, some of them have rooms in the back where the entire um, back of the ship is like your deck or your balcony. Which having a balcony probably helps make you feel a little bit more, yeah, you know, roomy. So like the only cruise ship experience I have, and this yeah, is I horrible, this. this is just like, so I bought it like, this was probably four or five years ago on, I bought a Groupon if anybody remembers that website or still hey, uses I still that use Groupon. Oh, really? I yeah. wasn't sure if people use Groupon still. I like it. But I've found this like Bahamas cruise. Um, it was like a two night cruise from like Miami to uh, Newport in the Bahamas. And so I bought it. And this is my first time ever on a cruise ship. And this cruise ship is very, very small. I w- wouldn't even call it a cruise ship. I'd call it like a glorified boat. Like, <laughs> I mean, it had like the cruise ship like smokestack on it and stuff, but it was teeny tiny. And our room had no balcony. It was below, like, I think it was, like, right at, like, the sea level. And I just remember Did you feeling... you have a window? Yeah, we had, like, a little porthole window. Yeah. But I remember feeling very kind of claustrophobic in there. And just mm-hmm. because the ship was so small, like, you really felt the ocean action, too. Like, mm. you were kind of getting tossed around, which on the bigger ships, I don't think is that, it's as bad because they're so big. Unless you hit, like, a major storm or something. Yeah, but. I'm trying to remember, like, I remember this one time... We went out of Fort Lauderdale, so we were going out of the um, Gulf of Mexico, and I think it was kind of wavy because it's not like, you know, like open sea. Yeah. And I remember at one, like one night, it was like very rocky. And this was, I mean, it was a long time ago, but it was still a pretty decent ship. Um, and my cousin got like really seasick. Oh, like, really? Throwing wow. up everywhere. Damn. <laughs> but yeah, I think you feel the bumps, but I don't know. Maybe not now with how big these ships they're building now are, you know. Yeah, yeah, they're so but, big now. Oh yeah, they're huge. But yeah, I like cruises. I mean, people hate on cruises because I get it. Like, especially since COVID, like a lot of really terrible things have happened, and like, yeah. people have gotten sick and stuff. And it is sketchy. Like we've covered different cases in the past where people will go missing on a cruise ship or just during yeah, a cruise vacation. Yeah. Um. Well, the whole the the one thing I don't like about it, and I experienced it very briefly, was like the fact that like yeah, it's cool to move around to different spots, but getting on and off the ship is kind of a pain in the ass. Um, Because like especially now, like they like you have to check in, check out, and Mm -hmm. it's kind of this whole thing. And then you're kind of you're on a time crunch to get back onto the ship, so you're kind of rushed to go through and do the things that you want to do at the particular place. So, like, for me, that's just me personally, though. I know a lot of people don't mind and like to stay busy and jump around to different places. But for me, I like to be, like, one place, stay put. Or if I'm moving different places, I want to be able to, like, 
come and go as I please. I don't sure. want to be like forced to stay yeah. on board or something. You know, like they'll have like days at sea on most cruises yeah. and you know, you're just out at sea on the boat the whole time. That that to me kind of bothers me, but, but yeah, I, don't know. I liked that cuz there's so much to do. Yeah, and that's just a kid. Right. There's that's like true. pools and And I haven't been on a cool ship like that. So maybe yeah. my opinion will change cuz Kendall keeps trying to tell me like, "Well, we're going to go on a Disney cruise with with her daughter and I'm like, yeah, I'd rather just go to Disney World and oh, she's like, no, I Disney would cruise. not. The thing about cruises, and I think this would be really nice for parents too, is like you get on a cruise, you pretty much like drop your bags and then like you don't have to do anything. I mean, which is kind of the same as like an all-inclusive resort. Right, but it's very right. like, it's a real vacation in the sense of there's no planning. You know, you can plan excursions right. or you could literally not. And it's just stay on like, the you ship. You can do yeah. as little or as much as you want, but it's very easy to have like that true. I don't want to do anything for a week. I'm going to go on a cruise because everything is taken care of for me, you know? Right, right. Like, as if like with kids, I feel like that would be convenient because they have like kids clothes yeah that's true <laughs> and, like, that's true activity tons of shit yeah that's what kennels keeps to telling do. me too is like oh you know there's like kid zone stuff like that you can like drop your kid and you know go out and have dinner together and stuff so it's it's nice because everything is conveniently located yeah, in sure. this central area and it's like obviously you could lose your kid on your cru- on the cruise oh, ship well, but yeah, it's still like, like a still closed a area yeah yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> can't just let your kids go crazy no i mean the one the one downside to it i think is like just it's terrible for the ocean too like these cruise ships are major polluters of the ocean destroying habitats things like that Mm -hmm. like if only there is a way to make that a little i mean just boats in general aren't great for for the water and and all that because of the fuel and stuff like that going into to the ocean but it's like you know until there's better technology i don't know what other options there really are but yeah for me just boats in general i kind of i had a really bad whale watching boat tour in australia and yeah, I heard about that. that that kind of scarred me from seafaring voyages for a while <laughs> um lakes i'll go out on lakes all day for so sure the sharks really that freak you out uh, <laughs> i mean i keep track of them for sure yeah, i know <laughs> they're they're very close to shore these days yeah i know like crazy close i know when i went to florida over the summer someone got bit by a shark yeah that that to me is, yeah that to me is a little worrisome but what are you gonna do? She was do? fine. What are you? Yeah, it's like the chances of being killed by one are pretty pretty slim, but being bit by one is increasing. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> let's go ahead and jump into this um, this disaster here. This is just a. It's honestly kind of a crazy story because it's just it's, it's so avoidable. Yeah, this um, was so avoidable. So every year, millions of people set sail on cruises bound for scenic destinations all over the world, and many of those passengers choose to set sail on Costa Cruises. Costa Crociere is an Italian cruise liner owned by their parent company, Carnival Corporation. So Carnival Cruises, everybody knows that, they own this cruise line. Um, Costa Cruises mostly sail to destinations around the Mediterranean, so usually routes along the coast of Italy and France. And as of this recording, Costa has a fleet of 12 cruise ships that sail tens of thousands of passengers through the seas every year, which I totally get the the appeal of a mediterranean cruise in fact kendall and i thought about it at one point um doing a mediterranean cruise because it does allow you to go to different countries without having the hassle of like going to the airport Mm -hmm. like flying because that 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 is a finding a hotel kind of alternative yeah getting a hotel things like that and like you said being able to go on the ship and just drop your bags Mm -hmm. and then just kind of enjoy yourself for the whole time so i totally get the appeal of cruise ships 
But in 2005, they launched their largest ship at the time, the Costa Concordia. The Concordia was actually also the largest ship in all of Italy when it launched. It was supposed to be a huge success for the cruise liner, and it was beautifully designed to be enjoyed for decades to come. It just needed to be christened first. Christening a ship is a tradition that dates back many centuries. They've been doing it since the beginning of time, pretty much. It's a traditional ceremony that's performed to bless the ship with good luck and safe travels. And as part of that tradition, someone breaks a sacrificial bottle of champagne over the ship's bow. At the Costa Concordia's christening, people excitedly gathered around the massive ship to watch it entering the water for the first time. But there was a problem. When the bottle of champagne was launched over the Concordia's bow, the bottle didn't break. Many of the onlookers cried out in disappointment. And this is a worrying sign of bad luck if you're superstitious and a haunting omen of what would happen to the ship only a few years later. We got a little clip of the observers of this failed christening, I think. There goes the champagne bottle, just bounces off the side. Oh no. How does that happen, first of all? How does a bottle of champagne not break hitting a metal steel ship? I think that is super bad luck. I didn't even know that was bad luck, but... Yeah, it's it has to break. and I ain't no physicist, but that doesn't make sense to me. To just put into perspective like how superstitious and just how many people believe that if the bottle doesn't break, um, it's definitely a sign of a bad luck. So like the Titanic actually never had a christening. Mm-hmm. And look what happened to the Titanic. So maybe there is something to that. But anyway, the Costa Concordia measured 290 meters or 951 feet long, and it could hold 3,780 passengers. It had 13 public decks or floors, and it was definitely a luxury cruise ship. It had a casino, four swimming pools, five restaurants, 13 bars, and one of the largest ever spas on any cruise ship. It also had an art gallery, three dance floors, a library, theater, chapel, which is interesting, an arcade and tennis courts, and at 114,000 tons, it was more than twice as big as the Titanic. Yeah, this was honestly a pretty big ship because I just Googled how many feet is the largest ship and I think it's the Symphony of the Seas and it says it's um, 1,188. So it's not like that much. So next to like longer. 100 feet or so. It could be much taller, but this sounds like it was a pretty you know, decent size. Yeah, because the Titanic. That thing was tiny though. Something like it's barely even a cruise as you know what we know them now. Yeah, it was long. It just didn't have as many floors to it. No, not at all. Um, just didn't have like like look at this comparison. The beefiness of it, yeah, yeah. Much, Compared to a yeah, wow, that's crazy. Ship. God, these cruise ships are big. Yeah, they're big. It's insane. The Costa Concordia set sail on its maiden voyage in July of 2006, and the ship's standard route became a seven-day Mediterranean cruise with stops in Italy, France, and Spain. The clientele in these cruises was mostly European. But English was designated as the main language on Costa Cruises. All employees were required to speak the language. But as for crew members working on the bridge, which is the command and navigational center of the ship, they were all required to speak Italian. That way, any instructions could be clearly understood or discussed. The ship's captain, since it had first set sail, had been a man named Francesco Scatino. Captain Francesco, or Franco Scatino, was an Italian shipmaster from Meta di Sorrento a seaside village south of Naples, and his family was very well known and respected in the town. 
Captain Scatino came from many generations of fishermen, and both he and his brother decided to become sea captains. He studied at a nautical school in Sorrento, and he also worked at a ferry company after he completed his studies. In 2002, he started working for Costa as an officer on one of their ships. It took him just two months to be promoted to staff captain, which is second in command. In 2006, he was promoted to the rank of master, which is the highest and most prestigious role in seafaring. When he was promoted, he was assigned to become the captain of the new Costa ship, the Concordia. Captain Scatina was known for being good at his job, but there was one incident in 2010 that did raise some eyebrows. He allegedly damaged another cruise ship while he was the master of the Costa Atlantica. He was allegedly speeding while bringing the ship into port into Germany, and that speeding incident damaged a different German cruise ship. But that German cruise ship company later denied that Scatino caused any damage to their ship, and his wife later admitted he was fined for the incident. But by 2012, Captain Scatino was 52 years old, and he had been a captain on the Concordia for over seven years. So fast forward ahead, we're going to be talking about a voyage that started in January of 2012. So I keep thinking that's like yesterday, but it's it's already like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's like I graduated high school in 2011, so time is flying. The Costa Concordia would be taking its usual Mediterranean route. And by the time it reached the Italian port of Civita Vecchia, there'd be 3,206 passengers and 1,023 crew members on board the ship. Some passengers got on board at different stops, which is why some reports say the cruise started in Civita Vecchia, and some say Barcelona, and some say Savona. But the ship's original embarkation point was Civita Vecchia. Most passengers were European, about a thousand of them were Italian, roughly 500 German and 500 French, and only around 125 passengers were Americans. And there were people from 70 different countries on board the ship for this particular voyage. Two of those passengers were a man named Benji Smith and his wife Emily. They had just spent a few days vacationing in Spain before their departure on the Concordia. They were actually part of the group of passengers who boarded from Barcelona on the 9th. So we're actually going to start this story from when they boarded the ship. So for the couple, it was going to be a nice getaway for them. In fact, they had just gotten married less than two weeks ago and this trip was their honeymoon. Benji's three kids were back at home and he and his new wife looked forward to taking them on a cruise together one day. So they were pretty excited when they finally got to the port and the cruise ship was obviously an impressive size and the staff members were all very friendly and kind so they felt very at ease. While they checked in, the staff said that they were holding on to all their passengers' passports. That way it'd be easier for them to get on and off the ship when they docked in different countries. The cruise liner would be taking care of all the immigration details. That explanation made sense to Benji and Emily, so they handed over their passports without thinking much about it. On the first day, Benji and Emily attended a safety drill which is routine in pretty much any ship you cruise on. During this safety drill or safety talk, they're supposed to go over emergency procedures and details about the lifeboats, which I do remember this on my little Bahamas cruise. They did have this safety drill. I remember we're all sitting in like the dining room and you're just sitting with everybody on the ship and they're like, here's where the lifeboats are. Here's where the, you know, life preservers are. It's honestly like the same idea of when you go on a plane and they do the safety thing every time. And everybody's just tuning it out. <laughs> that's pretty yeah. much what happens on the boat, too. I feel like everybody's just tuning it out. My anxiety ass as a kid, I was like, oh, God, it scared the shit out of me. And I remember going to my dad, like, crying. He's like, it's not going to happen. Joe. You'll be fine. I, was like, I like to make, like, mental notes. I'm like, okay, that's where the exit is. That's where, yeah. you know, just make mental yeah. notes in my head. So I'm like, eh. It's always better be If this prepared. plane does go down during this trip, I know where I'm going to go mm-hmm. if we land in water. Although I'm like, 
I wonder if those life preservers even work. The ones that you blow up. Oh, I fucking hope so. Hopefully I never have to find <laughs> I know, out. right? Seriously. So also during the safety drills, they go over everything the passengers need to know in case of an emergency, like putting on life jackets, getting to muster stations, uh, which is they basically like break up all the passengers into these groups and you're supposed to go to this designated spot um that's your muster station and then that's how they like i think that's how they divide you yeah. to go up on the lifeboats which is really sure. smart so that people aren't just like chaotically chaos. oh, running lifeboat, around like yeah, trying to get right. to the lifeboat and then it's overflowing. yeah no. that's that's so true yeah so there is definitely organization and there's a process to all of it when emily and benji arrived at the presentation they sat through a 20-minute explanation of the ship's layout and amenities but there was actually no safety drill an employee told them that all the safety info that they needed was in a binder in their stateroom, which this does not sound good. So obviously, this is a very odd way to start the voyage, but the first few days of the cruise were pretty enjoyable for them. The ship went from their original port to Palma de Mallorca and then to Cagliari on the island of Sardinia and Palermo. The ship was originally supposed to stop in Tunisia as well, but that was changed due to political unrest in the country. Anyway... Everyone on board seemed like they were having a great time visiting all the different ports of call. Again, this is a huge ship with lots to do, so it was pretty easy for people to keep busy and have a good time both on and off the ship. The ship arrived at Civita Vecchia, Italy on January 13, 2012 at around 7.30 a.m. in the morning. It was actually Friday the 13th that day, which is very honestly chilling. Once again, the passengers got off and embarked on a long day of sightseeing. Many passengers opted to take a train down to Rome, which was just southeast of the port town. They were due back at the ship that evening. And a few hours before the ship was going to set sail again, another passenger boarded the ship. That passenger wouldn't be paying for the cruise, though. She was 25-year-old Domnica Chemorthan, a Moldovan contemporary dancer and Captain Scatino's mistress. During December of 2011, Domnica worked on the ship for three weeks as a translator for Russian passengers. It was also during those three weeks that she got to know the captain. She had also been employed by Costa as a dancer for the past five years. As the ship headed to its next port, Savona, people enjoyed dinner, relaxed, and got ready for bed. Meanwhile, Captain Francesco was off at dinner drinking red wine with his mistress, Domnica. The ship was headed on its normal course through the Tyrrhenian Sea. When he eventually came back to the bridge, he brought Domnica with him, even though she was definitely not authorized to be there, which sure it's not great to have a major distraction like your mistress uh, while you're working and steering a giant cruise ship but what happens next is truly truly terrifying and we're going to get right into that here we're going to take a quick break before and we'll be right back so once he was back at the helm captain scatino decided to do a salute while the ship passed by the small tuscan island of Giglio. This maneuver was pretty common, and the Costa Concordia had done it a handful of times before. Salutes are a common way for sailors to say hi to any other sailors on the shore, but this salute would also be a way to let the passengers have a better look at the island. The last time the Concordia did a salute, it was off the coast of Giglio during one of their island festivals in the summer of 2011. The head waiter for the Costa ships was born on Giglio, and his family still lived there, so Captain Scatino was going to bring the ship close and blow the horn for them. Plus, it'd be good for business if passengers got a nice view of the island, and people on shore would get a close-up of the massive ship as well. It would all be good PR. It's also been speculated that Captain Scatino was making the salute to impress his mistress, Domnica. Of course, it's never been confirmed, and again, salutes are pretty common, so we don't know for sure if 
that really played a role in his decision to do this salute. But the coastline of Giglio is known to be pretty rocky as you get closer to the shore. So the salute had to be a very precise maneuver. And doing it is definitely a bit risky. Meanwhile, on board, passengers were still enjoying their night, eating dinner, relaxing in their staterooms, and taking the views of the stars from the deck. A pianist named Antimo Magnata had been immersed in his art, playing music for a group of well-dressed passengers on the aft deck. Back on the bridge, everything should have been smooth sailing, literally. The water was perfectly calm. It was basically smooth as glass. And the crew was busy steering the ship off of its normal course so they could salute. Giglio. But suddenly, someone noticed a rocky outcropping in the ship's path. Francesco ordered the ship to change course. But after those orders, there was a series of critical miscommunications that ultimately led to disaster. The helmsman Francesco ordered to steer the ship away from the rocks was Indonesian, and there was a bit of a language barrier. So there were a series of orders that were not followed correctly. When the captain gives orders, the helmsman is supposed to repeat them back to make sure he heard them correctly. Then he performs the order the captain gave him. These orders included changing the heading of the ship in degrees. The heading is the direction the ship is pointed in. These orders and maneuvers happened fast, so we're going to play a reconstruction of what happened in the bridge that night. The orders in this recreation were taken directly from the ship's voyage data recorder, or VDR, which is a cruise ship version of a black box. And for those that are just listening to the podcast, just a little heads up here. So the female voice is the captain, the first male voice is the helmsman, and the second male voice is the first officer in this reconstruction of the orders taking place. Let's reconstruct the last five minutes of navigational bridge just before impact. At 21.40 and 48 seconds, the ship is 0.5 nautical miles far from the coast, and the master orders 325. Three two five. Three one five. Three three five. Three two five. Three two five. The next few orders are completed correctly. Three three zero. Three three zero. Three three five. Three three five. Three four zero. Three four zero. At twenty one forty three and forty four. The speed is 15.9 knots. The master orders 350. The helmsman does not confirm properly. 350. 340. 350. Otherwise, we'll end up on the rocks. 350. However, taken from video recordings of the Voyage data recorder at 2143 and 46, the bow is oriented to 327 degrees. The rate of turn is too slow, bringing the ship closer and closer to dangerous rocks. The turning radius is such that the ship is located 0.5 miles southwest of the planned route, so much closer to the coast than planned. From this moment, the master starts giving orders no more for headings but rather angles. Starboard 10. Starboard 10. Hard to starboard. Hard to starboard. The bow is less than 150 meters from the rock, while the ship is off the planned course by more than 800 meters. Midships. Midships. Port 10. Port 10. After the master orders port 10, 
the helmsman reaches only five degrees to port. Port 20. Port 20. The helmsman heads erroneously to starboard and then pulls again to the port as requested by the master, but spends almost 10 seconds for the correction of the maneuver. Hard support. Hard to port. A second deck officer from the port wing warns that the port side has gone aground. A second later, a loud crash is heard. At 21.45 and 07 seconds, the ship collides into the rocks. To investigate the effects of the helmsman's error on the impact with the rocks, a dedicated simulator was developed. The figure shows the results obtained. The blue line represents the actual ship position at the impact time, while the green line represents the simulated ship position without the helmsman's error. The black ellipse represents the rock's position. One could safely state that according to the simulator, the ship would have passed close to the rocks without the impact. The recommendation to mitigate human contribution factor with education, training and technology has been made after Costa Concordia casualty. So I'm obviously no cruise ship captain here, but based on what we just heard from that reconstruction, it seems like, first of all, just the route in general was very risky in itself. I mean, they're coming very, very close to this island and these uh, reef or rocky outcroppings in the water and basically had the helmsman understood the orders from the captain correctly, they could have avoided impact of of the rocks and unfortunately the helmsman wasn't able to make the corrections needed in time before the stern of the ship rammed into the reef at around 9 45 p.m so the bow or the front end was actually able to clear but the stern did not and actually rammed into the rocks according to some simulations if all the orders had been followed correctly again the whole ship itself should have missed the rocks completely but the rocks tore into the ship and created a 53 meter or 174 foot tear. And immediately after that, water started flooding through this gash. That's pretty big. That's massive, yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, passengers on the lower deck heard the awful noise of rocks scraping against metal. They began to feel the immediate effects of what just had happened. I was talking with my friends when suddenly I was thrown back in my seat and then it was like an earthquake. The entire vessel was shaking violently. And there was 30 seconds of just this violent shaking and this loud, deafening sound. So I jumped over the back of the seat and I peeled away the blind from the window and directly behind the window was land. So my immediate reaction was, we've hit land, we're going to sink. It was interesting though, I was watching an uh, interview of somebody else that was on the ship and they said that when when the ship actually hit uh, the rocks, that he said that the sound that it made was very similar to what he had heard when watching the Titanic. If you've ever watched the Titanic movie, that like the sounds that they have in it when the uh, ship hits the iceberg mm. was like he said it was like spot on. As as weird as that sounds, he was like it's weird to compare this to the Titanic, but it literally sounded exactly like that of the like metal scraping Ugh, and just like I could imagine that's terrifying to think. Ugh. You know you're the boat the whole boat is shaking it's making this awful noise and everybody's just trying to figure out what what just happened 
Auntie Mo, the pianist on the fifth floor deck, couldn't hear any noise, but all of a sudden he felt the ship swerve and tilt to the side, or list. The movement threw Auntie Mo off his bench. Then he started sliding down the deck along with the bench and piano itself. He and the other passengers around him had to stumble their way to the center of the ship. Some passengers dining in one of the ship's restaurants reported that Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On was playing as the ship hit the rocks. Which again, this is the theme from James Cameron's movie Titanic. That's scary. That really is. It's super eerie to think about. And ironically enough, one of the passengers on board that day was the granddaughter of a Titanic survivor. Back in Benji and Emily's room, they were looking at photos from the day when they heard a faint scratching noise. It was almost like a pencil scratching a piece of paper. And then slowly objects in their room started to slide to the side. A box of fresh capers slid off a shelf and burst open. A wine bottle slid off a table and rolled under the bed. The couple was scratching their heads trying to figure out what was happening, and they wondered if the ship had just hit a big wave. But then the object started to slide faster and faster. Benji was barely able to catch a heavy TV as it slid off its stand. They both realized that something was very, very wrong. Just then, the power shut off for a few seconds before it flicked back on again. Other passengers had begun to notice a strange tilting from their rooms. But as it got worse, the dinner guests started to panic. Plates and glasses and food were sent flying and passengers tumbled out of their chairs. Something was seriously wrong. Water had begun to flood through the five compartments of the ship, including the engine room. The power went out shortly after that, which that is just so scary because inside of the crew inner corridors of the ship, like that's just pitch dark. Ugh. Also, those compartments were built to be watertight and they're crucial in keeping the ship afloat in case of an accident. Emily had seen enough at that point, so she pulled out life jackets for her and her husband and told him that they needed to get to the fourth floor muster station. That was where the lifeboats were. So they quickly made their way out of the room and towards the station. Luckily, Benji was able to use his phone's flashlight to see during the continuous blackouts. They ran into their assigned crew member along the way who told passengers the situation was under control and instructed them to get to their muster stations. By the time Benji and Emily made it to the lifeboats, there were already hundreds of passengers with life jackets huddled in line to evacuate the ship. Meanwhile, Antimo gathered with other panicked passengers at the dance floor at the center of the ship, but the blackouts kept rolling in. Over and over again, the lights would shut off and turn back on again. Children were crying out for their parents in the dark, and when the lights flipped back on, Antimo could see passengers holding broken teeth or covered in blood from falling onto the deck. It was truly a horrific scene. The crew was told that the issue is just an electrical problem that would be fixed. Announcements were played over the loudspeakers, reassuring passengers that the mechanical issue would be fixed soon. But obviously people are like, I'm not believing that, and people are starting to panic. Many passengers took it upon themselves to put on their life jackets and start waiting by the lifeboats for the inevitable. For an hour, passengers waited by their muster stations while the same announcement played over again, saying that there was just an electrical problem that would be fixed, and the ship continued to tilt more and more. Meanwhile, the situation on the bridge was starting to get dire. The crew realized that the ship was taking on water and they were losing control. Captain Scatino tried to steer the boat and let it drift away from the impact site to shallower water. That way, it would capsize and sit on its side instead of sinking completely in deeper water. This would make the rescue operations much easier. So this is a little audio of the instructions to drift the boat. Um, and I'm going to just read the captions here because it is in Italian here. So it says, we are now drifting towards the shore. What depth are we at? Over 100 meters. Okay, we have to see if we can make it with the length of our anchor chain. And then it says, let's drift a bit more to shallow waters and then drop the anchor. At worst, we'll sit on the seabed. 
let's wait and see. Shut the doors, shut all the watertight doors immediately. Captain, the passengers are starting to make their way to the lifeboats by themselves. Shall we let them go to land? Uh, yeah. Okay, shall we sound the emergency alarm? Yes, go on. Wait, wait, shall I give the emergency signal? What shall we do? What shall we do? So they're panicking, trying to figure out what to do. Captain is taking forever to figure out what he wants to do. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. We ask that you remain calm and proceed to your muster station. Located on deck four, please put on your life jackets. I repeat, please put on your life jackets and proceed to your muster station. And then at 10:12 p.m., an onshore Italian harbor master phoned the bridge. He asked if there was a situation on board. Captain Scatino confirmed that there was, but he only told the commander that there had been an electrical failure. So this is a quick little clip of the actual call here. Again, it's in Italian, so I'm going to just read the captions here. Harbor master says, good evening, Costa Concordia. Do you have problems on board? Captain says, yes, affirmative. We have a blackout on board. We are checking the situation. Harbor master, do you require any assistance? Or for the time being, are you staying around the island? Azigil. Yes, affirmative, we will stay here to verify the blackout. What type of problem? Is it just the generator? Because the police received a call from the relative of a crew member who said that during dinner everything fell on his head. Captain says, no negative, we have a blackout and we are verifying conditions on board. So Captain Scatino is clearly trying to minimize the, the situation here. He full well knows that they just hit rocks and yet he's trying to say, oh, it's just a, a blackout on board. But the harbor master, I think, already knew that something else was up. I mean, they're starting to get calls from passengers saying that things are much worse on the ship. And again, the captain made no mention of the giant gash in the stern or the chaos that was actually happening on board. All he asked for was some tugboats for assistance and he didn't send out an abandoned ship order. As more time passed without any solid explanation, some passengers started shouting that they wanted to get on the lifeboats already, but the crew instructed them to stay calm, go back to their cabins, and wait for further instruction. Here's the return to cabins order that was put out. Next, a woman who appears to be a staff member then confirms that the situation has been resolved. We have finished addressing the problem that we've had, the electrical problem with the generator. All is fine. If you wish to remain here, it's fine. But I ask you kindly to return to your cabins and stay calm. So because of this order, Benji and Emily started to walk back to their rooms. But before they could walk through the door, another crew member stopped the passengers and told them to get back to their muster stations. It seemed like nobody really knew what was going on or what to do about it. Meanwhile, Antimo was struggling at his muster station. He was trying to perform a roll call as per his staff safety training. But when he called out the names of his 25 assigned crew members, only 21 of them responded. A technician passed by the station and Antimo asked what was going on. The technician informed him that the ship had a hole in it and it was now drifting through the sea. Antimo then called his wife and told her that there was a technical issue on board. Their call got cut off, but when she called back, she broke the news. She had just done a Google search and confirmed his worst fears. The Costa Concordia had been shipwrecked. Back on the bridge, the crew was trying their best to fix the situation, but they were starting to see the writing on the wall. The ship was taking on water, and fast, and it was all over now. 
The engine rooms were flooded and the rudders were no longer working, so the ship couldn't be steered. Instead, the wind kept pushing the ship back towards the island. At this point, they had been wrecked beyond repair. Now they needed to get everyone evacuated. After 76 minutes of stalling, Captain Scatino finally gave the order to abandon ship. At around 11 p.m. that night, the Costa Concordia sounded its horn seven short times in one long time, which is the signal to abandon ship. A voice in English came over the loudspeaker. He announced the captain had given the order to abandon ship and instructed the passengers to line up and board the lifeboats. The Costa Concordia was now beyond repair, and it couldn't be saved. But the rest of the passengers and crew needed to get off the ship as soon as possible. None of it felt real. The past few days had been something of a dream for many passengers, and now the relaxing vacation had turned into a once-in-a-million nightmare. Domnica was allegedly one of the first passengers to get off of the ship. She said that when the captain realized that the ship would sink, he told her to grab her things and save herself. Benji and Emily tried to line up in front of the lifeboats, but they realized that too many people were cutting in front of them. They couldn't bring themselves to push past the other scared passengers. But just then, someone shouted, Women and children first. At that point, the men in the crowd started filing to the back. Benji and Emily didn't want to let go of each other, but in all the chaos, they got separated and she disappeared from his sight. A surge of panic filled his body, and he was certainly not the only one overcome with fear. Other passengers started to physically fight for spots on lifeboats. A few moments later, Benji heard his wife shouting his name. She was inside of a lifeboat, and once the crowd of women had disappeared inside them, he was able to push his way toward his wife. It seemed like they were on their way to safety once the lifeboat was filled and it was time to go, but there was a big problem. The way the boat was capsizing, the deck that they were on was now at an uphill angle. The lifeboats were fitted very close to the deck, so to get the boat off of the ship, it needed to be pushed out about 10 or 15 feet to clear the deck below them. So some of the crew members grabbed a metal pole and tried pushing the lifeboat away from the ship, but when they did that, the lifeboat fell down a few feet. So over 100 people who were crammed into that lifeboat felt their bodies lift up and smack down on their seats again. Here's uh, some terrifying footage of the lifeboats being lowering. And uh, yeah, it was a very, very scary situation. The text in the video claims one of the lifeboats was dropped too quickly, causing it to turn over as passengers screamed in terror. They waited way too long to drop the lifeboats. The lifeboats should, as soon as they hit, as soon as they hit the rocks, the, the yeah. call to abandon ship should have been put out. And because they waited so long, getting the lifeboats actually into the water is way more difficult. The lifeboat that they were on had cleared the deck, but with the way the boat was tilting, they were around 50 feet above the water. If the lifeboat fell again from that height, everyone on board could be killed. So the crew members made the decision to lift the lifeboat back to its original position. And just like that, they ushered all the passengers off of the lifeboat. Meanwhile, other lifeboats were departing the ship. As more and more of them left, it started to feel like every man for himself. People started to get turned away once the boats filled and some desperate passengers leapt into the water just to get into a lifeboat. Now Emily and Benji had to figure out what to do next. They asked one of the crew members where to go, but all he could tell them was that everything is under control. Why would you say that? What do you mean everything's under control? It's clearly like, not under control. Clearly it's not. And clearly like these, I mean, not only did they not have the safety drill, but it just seems like I mean, I'm just thinking, like, in a situation like this, are people going to follow, like, protocol and, like, remain calm and, like, get on lifeboats in an orderly manner? Like, I just, like, oh, it's crazy because it's, like, when something like this actually happens, I feel like fear takes over. Totally. And you're just, like, it's, like, fight or flight. 
it's just scary. Like it. But I feel like if they hadn't wasted so much time, like when as soon as it hit the rock, they should have immediately told them to get on the lifeboats and evacuate. And I feel like that's a. And if people saw everything where everybody was being lowered safely, right. and Yeah, that's was, what I'm saying. Like it would give them more time to do it properly and true. safely, and perhaps not saying that people wouldn't be panicked, but maybe lessen the panic versus right. when it's literally. <laughs> Like the ship is on its side and right. you can tell like, oh my God, not only do I have to get on this lifeboat, but this fucking lifeboat isn't even going to get into the sea. So now I have to get off of it. Like this is just causing so much more chaos that could have been, yeah. I felt like dealt with so much better and avoided. I just feel like the captain must have known how bad it truly was. Like, right? I'm sure the first thing he did was have somebody go down to the engine rooms and check everything. And as soon as he realized that there's a 170 foot gash in the side of his boat that yeah. they needed to get people off the ship immediately to try and like I don't know what his plan was to try and save the boat or something like seems like your first priority as a captain is your passengers and screw the boat like get right. everybody off safely but yeah it's not the case here when the crew member told him that everything is under control Emily and Benji were obviously stunned and they realized that they were running out of options it looked like there weren't any lifeboats left and many of the ones still on the ship were probably broken just like theirs was. So that meant there was a possibility that they'd have to jump off the ship and swim, which is scary in itself as well. They knew that they needed to figure out something fast. By this time, the ship was already tilted at a 45 degree angle. Walking was seriously a challenge now. Meanwhile, Antimo Magnata was still trying to figure out how to get off the ship. He found out that the lifeboat assigned to his muster group was already underwater. So that meant all the procedures and protocols the crew learned were now out the window. But it was hard to think over all the noise. There was tons of people screaming and crying in what sounded like 60 different languages. Not only that, but the ship was making these horrible metallic noises while it tilted to the side. Antimo described the sounds as a polyphony of horror and a swan in agony. But things would only get more terrifying than they already were. Now that his lifeboat was in the water and the ship was tilting more and more to the side, the situation seemed hopeless. Antimo knew he had to get off the ship, but he didn't know how. By this time, all the usable lifeboats had left. There were still hundreds of people trapped on the ship that needed to be evacuated. And keep in mind, at this point, the ship had tilted so much that it made it incredibly difficult to walk. The floor was quickly becoming another wall. People had to climb using whatever they could to get to safety, whether that was fire extinguishers, railings, corners of the wall, and stuff like that. Just whatever you can hold on to. It's hard to truly imagine the fear that these people must have felt as they were trying to escape this boat. They had no real instructions or really no clear way of getting off of the ship. They had been pretty much abandoned on a rapidly sinking ship, and they were truly terrified that they'd die on the Costa Concordia that day. But you know who wasn't one of these people abandoned on the Costa Concordia facing their possible death? None other than Captain Scatino. By that point, he had already made it to shore on one of the lifeboats. It's horrible. <sighs> Just, yeah. You're going to abandon Cowardly, your man. Ship. Cowardly. Before all your passengers... And in the meantime, those hundreds of people were trying to desperately save themselves. A group of passengers were able to launch a rope ladder from an embarkation point at the stern and climb down to rescue boats. One by one, they scaled the ship's hull in the dead of night, and many of them had to swim to shore. Emily and Benji were able to find a rope to tie to a railing, and they planned on scaling it down to the ocean, where they'd possibly jump in the water and swim to rescuers. It was going to be a dangerous task, so before they climbed down, they took each other in their arms and said their goodbyes in case one of them died in the process. Then they held on tight to the rope and made their way down while the other passengers followed. Due to the way the ship had listed, it was tilted so far to the starboard side 
that the port side was relatively flat. The passengers were able to sit while they waited for help to arrive, but they still were panicked and hoping that they wouldn't be abandoned while they clung onto the rope. Thankfully, after Emily and Benji waited on the ship's hull for three whole hours, one of the ship's lifeboats arrived. It had actually come back for the rest of the passengers after it dropped the first load off. Emily, Benji, and some other passengers were able to jump on the lifeboat's roof and make it back to the island safely. It seemed like nothing short of a miracle. Antimo was another one of those passengers rescued after he waited on the ship's hull. He was able to find a cable that a lifeboat had been launched from and slid down it. The life jackets were all equipped with lights, but they needed to be water activated. So he and the other passengers spat on them to get them to light up. That way the Coast Guard boats would be able to spot them. And finally, one of those boats did see them, and they were all rescued. At around 1.46 a.m., an Italian Coast Guard commander named Gregorio de Falco called Captain Scatino. He ordered him to get back on the boat and finish the rescue operation. So before I play a clip of this call, because I think it's important to hear the actual call between this commander and Captain Scatino, because it really shows how pissed they were that the captain had abandoned ship before all of his passengers had been rescued. I'm going to sort of break down what happens in this call so you have some context of what's actually being said, because again, they're speaking in Italian here. So the whole call actually drags on for four minutes. And basically, it's four minutes of excuses from Captain Scatino while the commander is just demanding over and over again for Captain Scatino to get back on the ship and help save passengers' lives. Well, this is the commander. So during just that dialogue there, the commander is making it very clear that he wants Captain Scatino to get his ass back on the boat, figure out how many people still need rescuing, how many women, children, uh, and passengers uh, they still need to get from the ship. And Captain Scatino's like, oh, well, I'm already on a lifeboat headed back out there. But the captain's like, for fuck's sake, literally says, for fuck's sake, get back on the boat. Like, you need to be on board. You can't be watching from the sidelines here. It's your job. Get back on the boat. So Commander DeFalco actually warns him, you may have saved yourself from the sea, but I will really hurt you. I'll get you in a lot of trouble. And then he yells, vada bordo cazzo, which roughly translates to get the fuck on board or get on board, damn it. Captain Scatino is giving all sorts of excuses as to why he can't get back on board the ship. He says it's listing. It's too dark. The ship's drifted. And he's saying he's going to stay on shore to coordinate the relief efforts. Lei va a bordo, è un ordine. Lei non deve fare altre valutazioni. Lei ha dichiarato l'abbandono nave. Adesso... 
Basically, that translates to, obviously, you can tell Commander DeFalco's furious. He's asking Captain Scatino if he's refusing orders. And again, Captain Scatino's trying to make excuses, but the commander's having none of it. He's ordering him to get back on board because there's already people who have lost their lives. And incredibly, Captain Scatino says, but do you realize it's dark and we can't see anything here? And Commander DeFalco responds, you want to go home, Scatino? It's dark and you want to go home. Go up the bow of the ship. At this point, the commander is exasperated. He's revealed that he's been arguing with Captain Scatino for almost an hour at this point. And for all the good that the captain did do trying to drift the ship and save more people, it's all tainted by this conversation that was recorded because it really shows just how cowardly he was behaving during all of this. In fact, many Italians started calling him Captain Coward since he abandoned ship. It's pretty much common knowledge that if a ship is sinking, the last person off of the ship should be the captain. Going down with the ship is an old seafaring tradition that dates back centuries. It's pretty much a universally held code among sea captains. So if your ship is sinking, it's your job to get as many people off the ship as possible, even if it may cost you your own life. Basically, it's dishonorable and cowardly, not to mention illegal, to abandon your ship with people on board. That ship and those passengers are your responsibility till the very end. Captain Scatino claimed that he begged the lifeboat he was on to turn around, but they said no. But a traffic official on the shore said that he offered to take Captain Scatino back to the ship on basically a raft, and Captain Scatino said no, even after multiple officials tried to tell him he should go back. Captain Scatino also claimed that he didn't board the lifeboat on purpose. He said he was helping others when he fell into one as it was being lowered. But there's a video that allegedly showed him waiting patiently to get on one of the lifeboats. And here's a little bit of that video clip. So there's no audio on this clip, but... Uh, there's uh, somebody was filming the side of the ship and they zoomed in here and I think they spot him. I believe they, yeah, that's him right there. there. Yeah, he's just standing there waiting to get off the boat. Didn't fall in. No. <laughs> Terrible. So regardless, Captain Scatino made it back onto shore safe and sound before hundreds of his passengers did. And now thousands of people from the ship were now coming out of their lifeboats and flooding the shores of the island of Giglio. Here's a video clip of the lifeboat ride and as they arrive to the shore. Oh, man. Just imagine what it was like on the ship for those not passengers, happening. not on a lifeboat. That's right. I was going to say, we're not safe until we don't hit a rock. The thing is, is, when you drop those, you don't know how shallow the water is for the rocks. Uh, show us. It'll be good. Just keep your cameras up on the right side. Why are they letting us go near it? Because they don't know. People might be need help to get off. Well... Why are they taking us away from it? Why don't they just drop us? Where are you going? <laughs> Make call. a call to freak out people. <laughs> call, yes, but no, but we need to call before they get Kathy! 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 
So you guys, you could hear they're back on shore. Passengers are calling out their their loved ones' names, trying to locate them. It's just total chaos. So at this point, we're just at the very beginning of people evacuating and the beginning of the rescue operations here. We're going to get more into the details of that here after our last break. It took around six hours to complete the evacuation of the boat. Those 4,000-some people who were evacuated onto the island of Giglio, which again, this is a small island that only has a population of about 1,000 people during the winter. A nun by the name of Pasqualina Pellegrino opened up the island's convent, school, and canteen to house all the survivors. Many other Giglio residents showed a beautiful level of compassion and opened up their own homes to the stranded passengers. Hotel owners let survivors take shelter from the cold winter air with hot coffee and wine waiting for them inside. Although so many people on the ship felt abandoned by Costa, the people of Giglio selflessly welcomed them with open arms. Antimo's rescue boat ride to the island was silent. Everybody was too stunned and horrified to even speak. When he touched the ground on Giglio, he felt like it was his second birthday. The people who made it off the ship were grateful to be alive, but their nightmare was far from over still. From there, passengers had to figure out how they were going to get home. They had no passports, clothes, food, or other belongings, and many of them didn't have a lot of money on their person. Many countries started sending out embassy reps to help get their surviving citizens home, but Benji said that there were two major embassies that failed to send reps to help their stranded citizens. Those countries were the U.S. and China. Benji and Emily were carted off to an airport hotel in Rome with many other survivors, and by that point they had no money, no passports, and no nothing, basically just the clothes on their back, and they needed to find a way to get home. They tried reaching out to the U.S. Embassy for help, but that got them pretty much nowhere. When Benji called, an official told them that they need to take an hour-long taxi to get to the embassy before five. That was going to be pretty much impossible since they had no money. Benji informed them that there were over a hundred American citizens stranded who needed help. He asked them to send a bus, but they said no can do. In fact, they were actually really annoyed that they had to come into work on Saturday because of the shipwreck. Emily was originally from Hong Kong, and when she called up the Chinese embassy, they pretty much gave her the same deal. No help at all. So they were really on their own now. But luckily, after a massive, complicated ordeal, they were able to get back to the U.S. safely. Over 24 hours after the ship capsized, two Korean passengers on their honeymoon and one crew member were actually rescued after becoming trapped on board. Ugh. Oh, man. A whole 24 hours on that thing? Yeah. Been, must have been so scary. 157 people were injured in the wreck and 20 of them required hospitalization. In the end, the Costa Concordia disaster claimed the lives of 32 people, 27 passengers and 5 crew members. Most of the bodies were found in the lower decks. So once the ship capsized, they were trapped by the water filling the decks and staterooms. That's what's so scary is because it, the way that it was tilting and finally fell over on its side, all those corridors ended up just being giant holes. Ugh. So there's just like no, if you're trapped in those corridors on the lower levels, there's just no way to get out and you know obviously water's filling them up that's just so terrifying horrible a man and his five-year-old daughter have been told that all the lifeboats on one side of the boat have been filled but tragically they drowned trying to make it to the other side's lifeboats another woman actually boarded a lifeboat and she had to return to the ship because it wouldn't launch she jumped in the water in a desperate attempt to rescue herself but she couldn't swim and she drowned a total of 13 deceased victims were actually found trapped in three different elevators on the ship and for those who lost their lives that day, unfortunately, it would have been a pretty horrific way to go. The search for any remaining passengers was called off the next day. We could go into detail about just how poorly Costa handled the evacuation from there, but we don't have enough time for that. It was extremely disorganized to say the absolute least. Just an absolute shit show. 
Only about two weeks after the disaster, some American Express credit card holders received a strange promotion in the mail. It was a mailer promoting a special for a seven-day cruise in February of that year. But that cruise they were promoting was actually supposed to take place on the Costa Concordia. One of the most unfortunate parts of the ad was the tagline, Immerse yourself in a truly European experience. Costa Cruises apologized and explained that the mailers had already been sent out by the time the ship sank. Commander DeFalco, the man who famously told Captain Scatino to get the fuck back on board, was celebrated by many Italians for his bravery, but for whatever reason, the Coast Guard moved him from his operational position to an administrative one after this. That angered a lot of people who thought the switch was a demotion, even though he'd done the right thing that day. Later on, Commander DeFalco served as an Italian senator. Only a few weeks after the Concordia sinking, there was another incident on a Costa cruise. On February 27, 2012, there was a fire in the engine room on board the Costa Allegra, caused by an electrical fault. That caused the ship to lose power and it was stuck drifting in the Indian Ocean with 636 passengers and 413 crew members on board. Everyone on board had to wait for hours for tugboats and helicopters to arrive with supplies. They were all stuck around 200 miles southwest of the coast of Seychelles. The ship wouldn't be towed until 7 p.m. the next day. The situation was made a lot more risky by the fact that the Allegra was stranded in waters that were known to be frequented by pirates. However, there were nine Italian Marines and armed guards on board in case of an attack, and luckily it never came to that. The Costa Allegra was towed back to shore and everyone was unharmed, but obviously the incident made the Costa company look that much worse. In July of 2013, five Costa employees, including their crisis coordinator, were charged with manslaughter, and they were put in jail for up to two years and ten months. The Costa company offered only 11,000 euros per passenger for damages, including the cost of the cruise, which is nothing for what they had to go through. Only one-third of the passengers took the company up on the offer. More money was offered to the families of the deceased or people who were injured, but the Costa Concordia would claim yet another life two years after it sank. On February 1st, 2014, a Spanish diver slashed his leg on a piece of metal during one of the ship's salvage operations. His fellow divers were able to get him to the surface, but tragically he died from his injuries. The body of an employee named Russell Ribello was the last missing victim to be recovered and it was discovered by divers in November of 2014. The ship was eventually refloated and scrapped, but that project took a very long time to plan. So in the meantime, the ship was left off the coast of Giglio Torat. And during that time, nature did what it does, and it started to take back the ship. Fish and other marine life took shelter, areas once filled with cruise tourists. The refloating operation cost a whopping 1.5 billion euros, or 2 billion US dollars. The ship cost 450 million euros to build, or 570 million US dollars. So those damages amounted to almost three to four times the actual cost to build the ship. But during those long two years, the ship sat partially submerged in its final resting place. It was a haunting reminder of the tragic events that happened that day. And for the residents of Giglio, it was a constant reminder of those who lost their lives. It's a bit strange and sad to see it there, but people also come here to look at it. We didn't know that was lying here, so we were surprised. I thought it was a hotel. Curious tourists take a day trip to see the ship up close. But for the people who live here, the Costa Concordia has become an unbearable eyesore. Every morning I come to the beach and I see it there. It's torturous. I see it every day from my balcony. It's a pity to know there are still people in there. It breaks my heart. So the way that the refloating operation worked was very long and complicated. 
In order to lift up the ship, massive buoyancy tanks were welded to the side of it to get it upright. Water was then pumped into the tanks and pumped back out again to get it floating. Then the ship was lifted onto a specialized underwater platform and lifted up so it could be towed. The whole process is known as par buckling. It's common with smaller sunken ships, but it had never been done on a ship as large as the Costa Concordia. It had to be a pretty delicate operation considering all the environmental concerns. There were a lot of worries that the ship's fuel tanks would leak and dump over 2,000 tons of fuel into the sea. The ship sank in a protected wildlife area, so if the ship broke up during refloating, there would have been another disaster of its own. Thankfully, though, that didn't happen. And there's lots of really interesting and eerie footage of the wreckage taken by divers underwater and scrappers exploring the ship while it was above ground. And we'll overlay some. If you're listening, definitely take a look at this episode on YouTube or Spotify because it's just even crazier to actually look at the footage. But eventually the ship was stabilized and towed to Genoa. It was the largest par buckling operation ever completed. From there it was scrapped completely and all the salvageable metal and parts were sold for scrap. The Costa Concordia disaster was one of the most costly disasters in maritime history. The company obviously took a massive hit after the disaster, but their cruises are still operating today. As for Captain Francesco Scatino, he was arrested and charged with manslaughter, causing a maritime accident and abandoning ship. He was put on house arrest while he awaited for his trial. Weirdly enough, in 2014, he was actually invited to present a seminar on panic management and emergency evacuations at a university in Rome. The university's dean apologized for the incident, and the professor invited Captain Scatino was referred to the university ethics committee. According to Captain Scatino, he said, I was called to speak because I'm an expert. I had to talk about panic management, and I know what to do in these sorts of situations. Yeah, bail like a little baby back bitch. Yeah, seriously. What, what are you talking about, dude? Horrible. On February 11, 2015, he was convicted and sentenced to 16 years in prison. He appealed the conviction, but it was upheld in 2017. And now Captain Scatino is now serving out a sentence in an Italian prison. Here's a clip of Captain Scatino apologizing, apparently. In an interview with Italian television, Francesco Scatino apologized, sort of. When there is an accident, it's not just the ship that's identified or the company. The captain is identified. And so it's natural that I should apologize as a representative of this system. Not exactly the unequivocal I'm sorry many victims wanted to hear. This is a banal accident in which fate found its way through human interaction, he says. In fact, Scatino deflected much of the blame. He admits he was distracted when his ship struck rocks and started to take on water. But he says another officer was at the helm and in charge when that happened. Scatino says he rushed to the bridge and took command. But reports from that night have him claiming he tripped and fell into a lifeboat. And audio recordings have him refusing to obey an outraged Coast Guard captain's order to return to his ship. All while passengers were still being told to return to their cabins. It's all under control, the crew member says. It wasn't. 32 people died that night. Scatino is charged with causing the accident, abandoning his ship, and multiple counts of manslaughter. The Italian interviewer asked him about one of the victims, a five-year-old girl. I don't want to talk about it, he says. As for his role in the disaster? Am I at peace with what I did? Yes. What? But in the sense of accepting what happened, no. But one has to be strong enough to live with it. Little comfort for the loved ones of those who didn't survive that night.
coward, man. Total coward. Trying to deflect all responsibility. At trial, the prosecution called him a careless idiot and alleged that Francesco slowed down the ship so that he could take his time with his romantic dinner. Then when he finished, he ordered the ship to speed up to make up for the lost time. Plus, they accused him of stalling the order to abandon ship, which may have cost some of the 32 deaths. I was going to say, like at the very least, he was 100% responsible for not you know, putting out the abandoned ship call way earlier. Yeah. At first, Dominica denied that she had ever had an affair with the captain. She said that they were just dinner partners and friends. But at Francesco's trial, she finally admitted the truth, that they had had a relationship. Here's Dominica addressing the court and the press. Giving evidence at his trial, Dominica Simorton refused three times to say whether she was having an affair before the judge threatened her with criminal charges. Sí. Speaking in Romanian, she said, Yes, I had a relationship with him. Stop. Now, could we please move on to more important things? Today I come to the process to help the judge and everyone, the people who die, to understand if I couldn't, I helped. I want to say that today is the second time I die because the first time I die in the night of the crush with my psychological brain and uh, problems. And today I die the second time because, of course, people <laughs> find out something that I try to hide for two years from my life because this is my private life and I have a baby and uh, this is as necessary for me to hide. I think it's really weird that she... Like, use the words died. Like, how... Well, I think that's probably, like, an English, like, because she doesn't know English very well. It's probably not... She's maybe trying to word it a different way, but, like... But she said, like, died a second time, a first yeah. time and a second time. Well, there's actually over yeah, 30 people who have, it's like, who have died. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Very insensitive, for sure. But apparently, the townspeople of Meta became some of Francesco's biggest supporters, but there is an actual indisputable hero in this story. A 30-year-old Italian musician named Giuseppe Girolamo. And he was one of the Concordia's onboard drummers. When Giuseppe heard the abandoned ship alarm, he was able to head to the last lifeboat and grab a spot on board. He noticed that there was still a family of two children waiting to board. But by then there was no more room on the lifeboat. Giuseppe heroically gave up his spot to the two kids even though he couldn't swim. And he knew this lifeboat would be his last chance at escape. He died in the shipwreck at the age of 30. On July 12, 2022, he was awarded Italy's gold medal for civil valor for heroically giving up his life for the children. Benji and Emily both had to go through many months of PTSD therapy after their experience. And as part of his healing journey, Benji wrote a book about their survival story called Abandoned Ship, an intimate account of the Costa Concordia shipwreck. Emily made an album of original compositions inspired by the experience called Isle of Lucidity. Antimo Magnata also wrote an Italian book about the disaster titled Seven Short Rings and One Long, the pianist of the Concordia. He developed PTSD from the disaster and he tries to use his music as an outlet for the trauma he experienced. He says that he'd still board a cruise ship today, but only to make one last piano performance at sea. Today, the Costa Concordia disaster is something that's never far from the minds of many survivors. One passenger said, I remember the screams of the people, the people who are jumping into the sea. I remember the cold... The sensation of terror in everybody's eyes. At the end of the day, it's really a miracle that over 4,000 people survived the wreck, but it's important to remember 
that 32 people tragically lost their lives on January 13th, 2012. I'm going to go ahead and end this episode in the only proper way and, and play a memorial video here for those 32 victims. Because ultimately, that's what you know really matters about this, is that we remember those who lost their lives tragically. And as a last note, I'm just glad that Captain Scatino, you know, went to prison for this because someone had to pay for the mistakes that he made. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. I'll see you next time.